0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This program has been brought to you by Cider Week NYC, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com.
0: Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, November 4th. This is the 85th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding restaurateur who is an expert in Chinese cuisine, and I will introduce him in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to follow your passion. Trust your gut and go after what you believe in, even if it's not the norm. Really, there isn't one career path or way of life. Discover what works for you, and don't worry about what others think. Your dreams are all that matters, so be who you want to be. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really thrilled to have my guest here. It is Ed Schoenfeld. He is a pioneering restaurateur who cooks up cutting-edge culinary concepts and transforms them into successful dining destinations. He's the owner and operator of Red Farm, Zagat's top-rated Chinese restaurant in New York, known for its fantastic dim sum, and Decoy, which specializes in bespoke cocktails and glorious Peking duck. Ed is recognized as one of the country's leading authorities in Chinese gastronomy. So welcome, Ed.
3: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you for coming out to Bushwick.
3: Well, Brooklyn's my hometown, <laughs> so it's always exciting to come, come uh, back home and see the changes. Actually, I drove here from the city, and I drove around a, a few different neighborhoods before I got here just to see what was going on. And, just- and there's a lot.
2: Yeah, no, that's true. A lot is changing in Brooklyn constantly.
3: Absolutely.
2: So how did you get involved in the restaurant industry and then Chinese cuisine? Did you set out to, to work in restaurants and be a restaurateur?
3: I didn't. I actually set out to be a James Beardian culinary authority and food expert.
2: Oh, well, that's and, a good goal.
3: <laughs> you know, really a food writer, you know, and um in my generation, aspirations like that were not part of the script, you know, I was went to New York City uh, private school where you got a really good education, had a chance to go to an Ivy League college, and I started in that direction briefly, but I really knew early on that I wanted to get involved with food and cooking, and, and I started cooking every day when I was um, 16 or 17 years old, something I still do to this day. and. Um, I decided I would start learning about cooking and food, and I did a couple of things. I, I started um, taking Chinese cooking classes with a lady named Grace Chu, who was kind of the doyen of American Chinese cooking teachers. I started doing that when I was 18. And I also got a job at my local newspaper, the Brooklyn Heights Press, and I started writing a column about food. It was called Gravy Stains.
2: Uh, and like um, it was you
3: know, <laughs> irreverent, kind of, I'm still, you know, irreverent. And um, after doing maybe 75 columns over the course of a year and a half or two years, I, I really, you know, had an epiphany, which was pretty simple and straightforward, which is that I didn't really want to write about the business. I wanted to be in the business or do the business. And during the course of those years and studying with Grace Chu, I also realized that Grace was a not... Um, the most wonderful Chinese cook in the world. She might be the most wonderful teacher, but she had a very patrician uh, background. Certainly, she was never taught to be a Chinese chef. In fact, her husband was the Chinese ambassador to Russia during the 30s and 40s, and she ran the embassy there, and she had chefs working for her. And once uh, 1949 came around, and and China went communist, and her husband lost his position, He apparently passed away someplace then, and she was able to come to the States. It was hard for Chinese people to come here. They couldn't get visas, but because she had a diplomatic passport, she came to New York in the mid to late 50s and started teaching Chinese cooking out of her house uh, on the Upper West Side. And I studied with her and realized that the best Chinese food I was having was at a restaurant at 48th and 2nd called the Li Dynasty, which was the first restaurant in uh, my acknowledged Chinese restaurant that got a four-star review from the New York Times. This is going back, you know, 50 years ago, literally, to 1965. And I discovered that the best way to access really great Chinese cooking was to find a, a top-level chef and ask him to cook a banquet for you. And so at the, the tender age of 18 or 19, I started making my rounds of some of the best Chinese kitchens in New York and going ahead and ordering banquets for 10 people. And I got to the point where almost every week I would have a dinner party and had a group of a couple of hundred foodies who were interested in going to these banquets. And
2: I wish I knew you then.
3: <laughs> it was a good time. It was a really interesting, exciting time. The the immigration laws that I mentioned that prevented Chinese people from and, and other nationalities from entering the states changed in the mid to late '60s, and it uh, resulted in a group of. Um, Wealthy Chinese people who had really been dispossessed from China in 1949. It was now 20 years later, and a group of those people came to the United States, and along with them, a group of really fine chefs. And I fell in with this group of chefs by by happenstance, just by setting up these banquets. It turns out that I started asking really the right chefs to cook dinners for me, and. Uh, I became friendly with one of the owners of, of a group these group of restaurants and made a quip to him about you know if you ever want to open a fancy restaurant in Midtown and you want to hire a white guy who can talk quickly you know it'd be an interesting opportunity well uh, the man I was speaking with was a man named David K, who was whose uh, name was keh and he was a one of the seminal uh, people in terms of introducing fine regional Chinese cooking to the United States and as much as anyone, he was responsible for bringing Szechuan and then Hunan cooking to the States. And this was made possible by this immigration of people and, and, and chefs who came in the late 60s and early 70s. So I fell in with the, the, this group of chefs because I was their best customer. And David uh, took me literally, and I became his assistant. And, and in the beginning of 1973, we opened a restaurant that we'd spent six months creating. It was called Uncle Tai's, and it was one of the first two Hunan restaurants in the United States, in fact, any place outside of China. And the restaurant uh, featured the cooking of this great chef, Uncle Tai, Tai Dao was his Chinese name, and because I was like the, the best English speaker, they threw me in a tuxedo, a really tacky blue suede one <laughs> with uh, blue little lapels and a fluffy blue shirt. And I became the host of this restaurant. And two weeks after it opened, it got reviewed in the New York Times, and it got a four-star rating. Wow. So I was like, you know, I was almost still in diapers. I mean, I was 22, and I found myself a the, the front person of the highest-rated Chinese restaurant in the country, and, and one that was to uh, become really, really influential. And I don't think at that point in my career I appreciated the incredibly um, high level of cooking that I'd been exposed to, but my primary teacher, who was another chef named Lo Hoi Yan, affectionately known as Uncle Lu, he was a chef to China's preeminent painter of the 20th century. There was a, a famous painter. There's a dish that you see in Sichuan restaurants called ta chien Chicken, T-A-C-H-I-E-N, that refers to Chang Daichian, this famous artist. And my teacher, Uncle Lu, is this famous artist family chef. In China, very often the best chefs didn't work in restaurants. They worked for patrons. And very often their patrons were captains of industry or... So Uncle Lou started cooking these banquets for me, and he, boy, he cooked really well, and I started having more banquets with him, and then he started inviting me to go into the kitchen, and even to pick up special ingredients for him, and there were days when he was cooking banquets for people, not for Eddie Schoenfeld, but for some other customers, not too many of them, and I realized early on that when he wasn't cooking for me, he was cooking for I.M. Pei, the preeminent Chinese architect in the world, and someone to whom, you know, the heights of Chinese culture is is his, you know, playground. And, you know, other nights he might be cooking for David Rockefeller. And I, by happenstance, uh, fell in with a a group of chefs who were just magnificent and learned about what really good cooking was, good Chinese cooking.
2: What was it about Chinese cuisine that drew you in or that you just, I mean, you stuck with it? Well,
3: you know, growing up as a a Jewish kid in Brooklyn, and having kind of an intellectual but kind of middle-income family that I came from, um, we would go out for food to restaurants. And as a child, that's something I really enjoyed doing. But, you know, we weren't going to Le Pavillon and eating, you know, fancy French food. We were going out to our local Chinese restaurant or to Manhattan Chinatown. And so... I think for me, and for many other people of my parents and my generations, you know, Chinese food was that exotic, foreign, deeply tasty kind of food that was often the doorway to experiencing another culture and something that was um, ultimately kind of, you know, almost like home cooking, you know, in, in its comfort level. And so when I started going out, rather than, I actually told my folks I wanted to go to hotel school in Lausanne, Switzerland, and give up my full scholarship to NYU. And they kind of looked at me and, you know, I make the joke that my dad broke a chair over my head. It wasn't true literally, but it certainly was a rebellious thing for me to do at that time. And, you know, kind of as as in your opening words, I was lucky enough to follow my heart to do something that I found, you know, emotionally appealing and actually appealing. And and it's been a great decision for me. It's something that I've, I mean, I've pursued great Chinese food my entire adult life now, and it's extremely exciting to me that our Red Farm and Decoy restaurants are the top-rated restaurants in New York. And here we are in 2015, top-rated Chinese restaurants, and that when I started in the business in 1973, so 42 years ago. I found myself at the front door of a series of the top-rated Chinese restaurants for you know twelve consecutive years. So to have been at the kind of cutting edge forty years ago and to still be there, but in a new way today, is you know kind of a, the beginning and and where I am today in my life. And you know it's just a, a fun, exciting thing. I've been able to pursue great Chinese food and, and just really good cooking. Uh, of all kinds you know my, my entire life and it's been a good life as a result that's how we know each other
2: that is how we know each other and before red farm which the first one opened how many years ago like five? we're in
3: our fifth year now okay mm-hmm.
2: but getting back to when you were working in this four star restaurant in midtown and then you got brought into the kitchen and in between then and opening red farm you consulted on projects you 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 became a, uh, a restaurateur.
3: Yeah, I you know I started imagining and creating restaurants in 1972 when we opened Uncle Ty's. That was the first restaurant I imagined and created. Um, Decoy, uh, which is the most recent restaurant that I've opened, was restaurant number 52.
2: Wow! So who oh, no. <laughs> you knew?
3: There, there are ten projects in Chicago. There are some projects that never got built, but that I imagined. There are kosher Chinese takeout places in Evanston, Illinois. Um, you know, uh, really, we did this really great early Mexican restaurant called Cafe Marimba with Cirella Martinez. You probably know her son Aron Sanchez. Yes. So, you know, I brought, Ar- Aron has a twin brother, and uh, I brought their mom and her two nine-year-old sons to New York City to open Cafe Marimba in 1983 and 84. So. You know, I've worked in a lot of different parts of the business, even though it's, you know, my expertise is with Chinese food and my my ongoing passion is in that area. But I I really, you know, I love to cook. I still cook virtually every day. I cook today. Um,
2: And when you cook, are you cooking Chinese cuisine or all across the board? um,
3: I cook many different kinds of food. I, I by the time I was 23, I'd been to every three-store Michelin restaurant in France. I spent, Impressive. I spent my Fridays from the time I was 11 years old till I was 17 with my grandmother, Goldie, who raised 19 kids and cooked for 24 people twice a day, and was a really terrific Eastern European Jewish-style cook, and I grew up learning how to make blintz wrappers like four or five crepe pens at a time. and. Uh, But mostly, you know, when I cook, I I cook to please myself. And throughout the years, I've um, been very thematic in terms of what I I do. And what I mean by that is that I literally pick out a theme and kind of explore it for a year or two or three, whatever suits my fancy. And, you know, over the years, um, in recent years, there was a period going back maybe eight or nine years ago when. I would experiment, create, and then cook with and use as a base in my cooking all kinds of shellfish stocks. I went through my white bread phase, <laughs> where I before I opened Red Farm, I would entertain in, in my home very, very often. You've been to my house, I think. I right. have
2: been in Newark. It's yeah. it's We could spend the whole show just talking about your your amazing house. <laughs> so,
3: so I spent two or three years, every time people came to the house, I'd always make something that included white bread. And, um, then I went through my phase, which I'm still a little bit in, but I'm a little bit out of, but, uh, I've been using a lot of Italian ingredients and making them taste Asian and then using Asian ingredients and making them taste Italian. And the, the, I, I still cook that way quite a bit. Sometimes I slip some Jewish cooking or French cooking in there and mix it in. And then I love right now taking things and repurposing them so you know owning three chinese restaurants one of the the most fun parts of owning those restaurants is on days when i don't manage to cook i can just say hey make me up a package with a peking duck or a steak Mm -hmm. it's pretty nice to have all that kind of takeout but I often use that to embellish something that I'm cooking myself rather than just eat that. So one of the things I bring home often to use as, a, as a, a base ingredient are two scoops of white cooked white rice. We have this really great short grain sushi rice in our restaurants. And so this morning was a very interesting. We had a very interesting breakfast. During the course of the week, I made some eggs, where I made a sauce from minced sweet Italian sausage and shallots and onions and some fresh sort of herbs from my garden. And I cooked the eggs and poured the sauce over it, but I had some extra. And I had that, just mm-hmm. a little container of it on the side. And then one night, I had brought home some grilled bean curd and vegetables from Red Farm. And that same night, I brought home some barbecued beef fried rice... And then I had some really, the, the last fresh corn of the season hanging out. And so, a couple of days ago I made some fried rice um, using some of the white rice I brought home from the restaurant, and then I took the little bit of ground sausage that I had left and the little bit of bean curd and vegetables that I had left and the juice from that, and some fresh corn that I had in the house, and, you made it. S- and some barbecued beef fried rice. I had that left over this morning. I took all of that and I made some sauteed chicken and put that in with some little more rice and made chicken fried rice and topped that with a sunny side up egg and So there are you know pieces of six right. different dishes in my breakfast this morning, and it 's kind of the game i 'm playing right now,
2: yeah, it sounds delicious now i 'm really hungry. And on that note, we're going to take a little break, (laughs) so stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ed Schoenfeld, the owner of Red Farm and Decoy. So, Ed, how did you meet Joe Ng?
3: I met Joe Ng um, by keeping an eye on... I I keep an eye on the various Chinatowns in New York. You know, we have like 3.5 Chinatowns these days, and... um, (laughs) 3 point five yeah we have a couple okay. like a couple of half Chinatowns in Brooklyn in addition to Brooklyn Chinatown we have a few other areas where there's concentrations
2: whatever you Chinese say businesses. I'm going with you're the expert so
3: <laughs> so um, basically I, I through a friend of you know an eating buddy of mine who's a real estate broker who chases good Chinese food I heard about this really good chef and he was cooking not in Brooklyn, Chinatown, but on 18th Avenue. Brooklyn, Chinatown is on 8th Avenue. 18th Avenue is um, its the only place in the world where Israel and Italy have a common border. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Borough Park section of Brooklyn is hard up against the Bensonhurst section. And one side of the street, you see all these Hebrew signs. And the next side, you know, it's really 18th Avenue, but it says Cristoforo Colombo Boulevard. And right there was this big Chinese restaurant which Joe cooked in and he was really cooking some terrific food and I started going there a lot introduced myself to him and after three or four years of eating there and becoming friends with him, I had a consulting project that I was working on and I decided to see if he was interested in kind of changing his life a little bit and uh, that was a restaurant that was known as Chinatown Brasserie which I set up for, as a consultant. And Joe went there as their dim sum chef. And when I introduced him, I actually told him that I was interested in opening a restaurant with this guy myself. And indeed, a few years later, we, we did Red Farm, which is you know now in its fifth year.
2: Right. So I wasn't clear on that for people listening who don't know who Joe is, but Joe is your chef. And now you have two Red Farms. You have the Upper West Side
3: and West Village. Right. We have two Red Farms and... Uh, in our village location, which is where our original Red Farm is. We're in a brick row house that was built in 1828. And when we opened the restaurant, right underneath of us was a laundromat. And at one point, a couple of years into Red Farm's life, we purchased that laundromat with the idea of expanding Red Farm, but eventually decided to make a whole new brand there, and we created our... um, uh, our new brand called Decoy, it's not so new right now, it's a year and a half old. And it is a mixology bar, and it's a, a restaurant that features Peking duck. And we offer set Peking duck dinners, and we cook the, the ducks to order for our guests. And it has some of our more modern food. We have uh, you know, kind of different cooking there than we have in our Red Farms. Same general style, same quality, but you know, just different things. Things that we would want to eat as part of a Peking duck focused meal.
2: Right. Well, I've been there with you. I've been to both your locations. I mean, the food is sensational. It's delicious.
3: Yeah. I, you know, our bad food tastes might be good. (laughs) And our good food is, you know, Joe's cooking is, is excellent. I, I, you know, I own those restaurants in partnership with Joe and our financial partner. And, you know, obviously I want the restaurants to do well and earn a lot of money and all, but before all of that, you know, I'm just a fan of great Chinese cooking, and it's something that I've been chasing for, you know, as you've just heard, you know, for four decades, and very passionately, and Joe is just one of the most talented and creative chefs I've come across. I uh, I know that his food would be a, a big hit in Hong Kong or Singapore. Or, uh, he really has a, a excellent, um, you know, he has fine artisanal skills. and. You know craft you we' know, real craftsmanship, but he also is very high on the delicious scale and um we've prioritized that in terms of what we're looking for from our restaurant you know we more than being authentic or being whimsical, which we are um we're interested in being delicious that that's you know our culinary first number one on the list. Wow. And, and Joe is. I can you know, vouch you.
2: You do able to do that. Yeah, are able to do that. So, so what's next? Will there, there be more red farms? More decoys?
3: Good question. I, we've had a lot of people inquire, um, make us some pretty wonderful offers, um, and we've been, you know actively looking to see what we're going to do next. You know, we've we have some spaces in California and Florida that interest us. We are interested in doing a little more in the New York market, uh, maybe something here in this neighborhood, in Brooklyn.
2: Uh Uh-huh. That's why you were driving around.
3: Most of my (laughs) labor—well, you know, I'm from Brooklyn, and most of my life people have said to me, why don't you open in Brooklyn? And I always opened in Manhattan. I don't know if I'm going to change that, but most of my labor force lives in Brooklyn. So that, that's something that's not insignificant to me, and uh, that's a good point. You know, we have very, very highly skilled people in our kitchens because we craft about fifteen different styles of dumplings, and we make large quantities of those things. So, in the given week, we might make twenty thousand pieces, and everyone by hand. And there aren't so many uh, candidates out there to do that kind of work, and having people who can work close to home makes it a lot easier from a from a labor perspective
2: yeah very true
3: know? so but we'll, we'll see
2: we will see let me ask you my question i had from last week on my episode 84 i had on maura sedgwick nyc senior manager of culinary events for Share of strength and i had on jackie palmer of ptg event services so they would like to know how you feel about the growth of charity and food events, especially in New York City.
3: Well, we've had enormous growth in the restaurant industry. and Certainly in my lifetime, it's just been fantastic. And um, I'm a supporter of the communities that I'm in. And I think it's very, very important to to really be a good neighbor. And um, the, that means kind of the same thing in the West Village and in the Upper West Side, though the population is different and the type of engagement you have is different.
2: And the hours they eat.
3: The, they definitely <laughs> eat at different hours. But so, so we, we get asked to, uh, for a very large amount of charitable contributions. And there's rarely a week that goes by where we don't make one. But we've, you know, had so many inquiries Mm -hmm. and requests, you know, that we've, you know, set up ground rules. So um, I like the fact that, I mean, people are greatly passionate about food. And raising money by creating food events, I think, is uh, top of the list for good ideas and ways to go. I, I, you know, just today donated a dinner for eight to, you know, a particular cause. Um, That being said... For instance, we, we're not interested in donating food to, to events, because we make all of our dumplings and things by hand, and it's arduous, hard work, and we don't want to have to... to. We're barely able to keep up with the demand for our business, let alone send someone 2,000 dumplings for free. So that's something that, that we, we don't participate in personally. but. Uh, We're particularly focused on uh, the community's educational institutions. Uh, We're very supportive of of our local schools. Um, Not long ago, uh, one of the local public schools on the Upper West Side had classes who were studying restaurants. And the classes were two classes, each with about 40 kids. And we invited them to come into our our restaurant at 10 o'clock one morning and on two separate days gave tours to 40 first graders and showed them our kitchens and saw our stoves and we gave them each a taste of our food and um, tried to make them feel welcome just the way we would with anyone else right. and um, it's important I think in, in the hospitality industry to make uh, customers of all ages feel good about you you know very often kids in the family could be deciding where you to go to eat you know Johnny Johnny doesn't Get fussy when he goes to Red Farm, so let's
2: right. bring
3: him to Red Farm. And, in in fact, one of the most fun days of business this, this past year, or this current year, um, was in August. And it was the couple of days when camp just got let out. And kids came home in the middle of August, and they, their parents said to them, Okay, it's your first day home. Where do you want to go eat? Red Farm! And, and the number of kids who said Red Farm was just fantastic. It made me... Um, you know, really yeah. think that we were doing something nice, right? You know, that's a, a good demographic to be popular with. So,
2: terrific. Okay, great answer. Great question. We take another break here. We're going to come back, do our my speed round game, and talk some industry news. So, this is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ed Schoenfeld of Red Farm and Decoy. It's time for my speed round game. Ed, what this is is I'm going to name a couple of things, like an either-or situation, and you just pick your preference.
3: Okay, you're going to put me on the spot, huh?
2: You betcha. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Mocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la card. Small plates or large plates? Either. Communal table or chef's counter?
3: Communal table.
2: Tipping or all inclusive charge? Tipping. Reservations or no reservations?
3: Depends on the place.
2: <laughs> Blinky, Pinky, Inky, or Clyde?
3: None of the above.
2: That's my, that's my Pac-Man joke for your dumplings. I know. I know. <laughs> the most uh, People people who haven't been to Red Park won't know what I'm talking about, but that's more reason to go get, get these Pac-Man dumplings. They're delicious. We they have
3: great shrimp dumplings that look like, the, 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 like Pac-Man and ghosts.
2: Yeah. It's so fun.
3: They're very fun, and they're really delicious. Mm-hmm,
2: they are. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Newark? Everything all of the above. Awesome. Oh
3: well, yeah, I like all those places.
2: <laughs> and they like you.
3: Well, we we try, you know. <laughs> so my, you know, we we try to be nice to everyone in our restaurants and we try to be really nice to our staff because they take care of our customers, you know. So, you know, our mantra is a little bit like be nice to everyone and be even better to some people.
2: So, okay, hospitality industry. It's a good mantra. Yeah, and, and a
3: good way, you know, a good way to live your life. true you know we have a lot of there's a lot of upset when you run a restaurant you know I I had two floods in the last three days and you know not nice to have a flood but stuff happens and you find a way to deal with it and you move forward you know you know the, the show is on and curtains are open you know take Say your lines and give a great performance.
2: Spoken like a true professional restaurateur.
3: <laughs> you know, it, uh, it's, it's truth. You yeah. Know. It's just, why uh, be upset inside? You know, treat people well, give them good food, hopefully give them something that excites them enough to really want to return. And to for them to tell their friends, hey man, I went to this really great place, you have to check it right. out. That's the. That's the key to, you can get people to feel, feel that way and say that. That's the key to doing business over a long period of time.
2: You know? Okay. Let, let, I want to get your opinion on this industry news, this article, or articles I have here. So, first in Grub Street, titled A Celebrated Sushi Chef is Taking a Stand Against the Health Department by Chris Crowley, a follow up article in the New York Post. Health Department deserves an F U Reading for Stupid Sushi Glove Rule by Steve Cuzo, who I had on my show. <laughs> he um he put it out there his opinion on it. So this this happened this week, uh, with the New York City Department of Health. They closed down a popular East Village restaurant called Sushi Dojo, and this is Chef David. Buhadana, and he has a couple other places, and they all were shut down by the health department because in at his restaurant, and also it's known in other sushi restaurants that they they don't wear gloves and they use their bare hands, and the food also being out of temperature. He had some violation points, and they shut him down. So, what's your take on this? With you know, with the health department and cooking with your bare hands.
3: Well. You know, the first thing when you you talk about this topic is that it has to be clear both from the restaurateur's point of view, from the employees that the restaurateur employs, and from the the obligations of the health department that we're all interested in creating an environment that is non-threatening and that um, gives your guests a healthful and... um, delicious experience. And I've seen the health department at work over a long period of time. And uh, I'm very sympathetic with the sushi chefs. I, I think that the, the whole system of getting A, B, and C, and uh, what, what very often is sometimes uh, out of your control as a restaurant operator, that you can get cited for, fined for, closed for, um, it's a very, very... I I see it as an extremely broken system. Um, We have fire drills in our restaurant, just the way, you know, health department drills. Um, We do things... I mean, I've had people come into my restaurant, uh, which is spotless. If you walk into our our walk-in box, it's impressively organized and clean and and all the time and we always try to keep our refrigeration you know we check at the temperatures in every box every day and you know we we really educate our people about proper food handling but if you own a very busy restaurant that handles a great deal of food uh, there are a number of rules that the health department enforces at with a certain seeming selectivity based upon the inspector and the, you know where he is in his evening and what his mood is, and it can be just a nightmare for us as, as restaurant owners. And I live in fear of the health department, and um, we have regular inspections from inspectors who don't work for the health department, who are working for us, where we send them in mm-hmm. to make sure everyone's compliant. And I've had so many incidents that I feel are not in the in the public's interest, and that have been. Frankly, abusive. That um, I, you know, I, I don't like the system at all. I, it, it feels bad to me, and and the idea of a sushi chef, you know, part of becoming a sushi chef is learning how to handle fish and use your hands, and you know, right now we're all well, sushi needs to be frozen first so that you know um, it's not threatening to people and. You know it's a tough one. I mean, I've had inspectors come into my restaurant on a Friday night um at about eleven o'clock at night after we've fed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and you know look in corners that were, I, I once had an inspector unscrew my safe
2: looking for looking
3: for duck no <laughs> looking look looking for you know mass droppings. And you know, had a wow. safe in a cabinet. It had been untouched for three years. You know, it was in our building that was built in 1828. That where the utilities come in there, from the street. There's mm-hmm. a hole there bigger than you and me together. That's how the the pipes come in our building. So, you know, if you're in a New York City building like that, you know, you know, vermin walks into your building. That's that's what it's like. That's how the the city actually is. And you know, trying to guard against those things. I mean, sometimes it's not a matter of food handling or being clean. Or yeah. you know, same thing with we get hundreds of cases of things brought to us every day, and who knows what's in the cardboard there—flies, fruit flies, roaches. I mean, we're on. You know, we're—it's unbelievable how often we have the exterminator, and you wonder about that. He's putting chemicals out there. Are they? You know, is that really a good thing either? You know. Um, it's a tough situation, and, and I certainly feel that the the punitive nature of the letter grading is, um, I, I think it's foolhardy. I, I don't think it's uniform. And, you know, we have close to 200 employees. We supply food for a f- number of families, maybe four or 500 people, um, live off of our restaurants. And mm-hmm. why should our existence be threatened because there were seven fruit flies on my ceiling 20 feet up at a particular moment when the inspector was there
2: yeah it seems like there are technicalities a lot of times with these inspections and their timing and the whole system i'm from what i know i'm not a fan and i i i sympathize with this with sushi chefs who you know i think um i don't know if wearing gloves makes it cleaner, safer. I think when you're, you're bare hands, you're washing them more. I don't know if you're washing the gloves or changing them. You know, well, I mean, there's listen, a lot there's, there's a lot involved in this. You know,
3: this. people will talk to you on each side of this. A lot of people will say that the gloves retain more bacteria than yeah. your skin does. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that um, you know, we, we make sure we handle things that, that are in temperature. and But, you know, the, when you cook a steak and it's medium rare, it's like 115, 120 degrees inside. And, you know, the health department wants everything less than 40 or more than 170. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of right. very unrealistic regulation that is in place.
2: True. Well, we'll see how that this scenario Plays out. I think uh, they're in the thick of it, so I well, wish. All was I can tell luck. you is,
3: I just got an A at my downtown restaurant. Woohoo! And the number—it was so important to us. Yeah. I probably had three or four different employees within a minute text my phone to let me know. And these are not my managers; these are like my bartenders and waiters. They're like, oh, "Thank God we got an A!" Yeah. Because we all communally work hard to keep our our, our places really really clean and it only you know it only takes one small slip to fall down to a b level and yeah um, i hear you it's unfortunate
2: well that's that's wonderful i'm glad you got that i didn't text you but i'm telling you now so we're gonna take one more break come back and i'm gonna do my solo dining experience so stay with us this is all in the industry on heritage radio network
1: Cider Week helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders.
2: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience, which this week is brought to you by our friends at One House Hospitality Headhunters. Check them out on Facebook, on Twitter at one underscore house, and on Instagram at one house. This is Mike Hewitt's Company, and it's spelled O-N-E-H-A-U-S. Okay, here's the rundown of my solo dinner at Chamico's location, an unmarked beach on Solomon Bay in Tulum, Mexico. The concept. Fresh seafood in a casual, beautiful beach setting. The chef? I have no idea. Why did I go? Because I was in Tulum by myself for a weekend of R&R, and I heard of this off-the-beaten-path beachside cafe from my hotel concierge, and it sounded amazing. My experience. After swimming at Cenote dos Ojos, I had my cab driver take me to this remote restaurant. Now, when I say remote, I mean REMOTE with all capital letters. It's located down a dirt road with no signage, past residential security guards, by a desolate parking lot. We parked and my driver pointed me in the right direction, and I walked on the beach past a a palapa to find hammocks and a few plastic tables set under palm trees by the water. What a find. I was thrilled to be having lunch with sand on my toes and an up-close view of the sea. What did I get? Well, there was no printed menu. The waiter said he had ceviche, lobster, and fried fish. So I got the lobster and bottled water. My take. The most beautiful grilled lobster dish was presented with guacamole and chips and an avocado tomato salad. It was almost too pretty to eat, and it was delicious. The scene. A few tourists who are in the know, like me. Perfect for seafood and beach lovers who seek awesome restaurant destinations. Interesting tidbit. Chimico's has no phone, website, or address and is cash only. Personal fun fact, it was my first time in Tulum, which is about an hour and a half from Cancun, and I would highly recommend it for a relaxing getaway. The water is crystal clear, and the vibe is chill. The cost was 500 pesos, which I think is about $30. Would I go back? Yes. As I said, they do not have a website, but if you Google Chimikos, you can find a couple articles on it, because I did afterward, and it was quite awesome. <laughs> So that is my solo dining experience this week, and it is now time for the final question. My next guest is Carolyn Richmond. She is a partner at Fox Rothschild, Attorneys at Law. She's a co-chair of the Hospitality Practice Group and Labor and Employment Department. So, Ed, what shall I ask Carolyn?
3: Service charge, tipping. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think we might have to talk about that. <laughs>
3: you know that—that's what—that's the big issue that's on everyone's plate these days, and and the effect of you know raises raises in the minimum wage for tipped employees, something that uh, is a big concern, I think, for those of us in the business. Um, you know, just the, it's kind of strange that the. Minimum wage for tipped employees is going up Since they already earn much more money than everyone else in the whole. They earn more than the chefs Usually in a good restaurant, tipped employees make more than the managers Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who are getting the raise Something doesn't compute
2: Yeah, well it's a hot topic And I'm glad I'm having her on the show Because I'm sure she has a lot of insight into it And yeah, we'll see
3: yeah and you know that thing those uh, rules vary state to state too so uh, it's a complicated subject and i looks like there's going to be an ongoing readjustment in the industry as to you know how things work and because you know right now we have a new phrase i don't know if you've used it but you know it's a california style restaurant which means no table service you walk up to a counter place and order they give you a number you sit down at a table someone comes out and says i have you know food for table number 21 and you have a sign that says 21 and they bring it to you but you know the, the house doesn't have to pay all these waiters hmm. because where it's 15 dollars an hour in california too expensive it becomes unaffordable and yeah that's what's happening folks
2: change change is happening and i think this topic is is We'll see if we can get through it in 45 minutes, but
3: well, <laughs> it, it's, it has it's a lot,
2: a lot, a lot. It's complicated.
3: Yeah, and it's going to affect our industry profoundly mm-hmm. and for you know a long period of time. I mean, right. I, you know, big, big rearrangement. And it'll be interesting to see if it's for the better.
2: Yes, it will. And that is the show. Thank you so much for oh, coming pleasure. out here.
3: Thanks for inviting me.
2: Well, I, I loved having you out here. I love your restaurants, people. If you haven't been, you need to go check them out. I've been talking to Ed Schoenfeld. He's the owner of Red Farm and Decoy. His website is eatingwitheddy.com Also, his restaurant websites are redfarmnyc.com and decoynyc.com dot com. You can find him oh on yeah on Twitter at EatingWithEddie at RedFarmNYC and at rf decoy you can find me at sherry bayer at bayer pr at all industry my facebook page is all in the industry my website's bayerpublicrelations.com i actually just launched a new website called sherrybayer.com that you can check out as a reminder all of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org we are on stitcher and itunes you can listen to us anywhere anytime and also feel free to leave reviews on itunes i'd love to hear what you think of the show Many thanks to my engineer, Liz, to my guest, Ed, and to everyone out there listening. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday with another live show. Till then, have a great week. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.